from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 20th. Today, the lessons from one university, Biden's long road to nomination, and the fight over the legacy of Susan B. Anthony. Hi, Tar Heels. Welcome to the first day of classes for fall 2020 at Carolina. We're glad to have you back, and I hope you're ready to take on the challenges this year will bring. That's Kevin Guskowicz, Chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Ten days ago, the campus officially opened for in-person classes. It did not go well. I think the only word for it when I first got here is apocalyptic. I am making it, and I feel like that's all, as a student in general, that can be said right now. Students, faculty, and staff have been raising the alarm about this for months. Less than a week after students returned to class at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, the school is responding to yet another cluster of COVID-19 cases. It seems to be worse now than it was when we left in March. Since March, faculty and staff have been working tirelessly to prepare for this moment. From the very beginning, student leaders have been saying a return to campus is not smart. The videos I've seen of freshmen on a slip and slide outside of their dorm is just egregious. UNC students caught on camera on a slip and slide, playing volleyball and gathering in groups without face coverings outside of Hinton James Residence Hall Saturday night. 135 people in the first week of classes tested positive for COVID-19. Their priorities were not student lives. Some of you are here in Chapel Hill taking classes on campus or remotely. I want you to know that no matter where you are, you are a Tar Heel and a valued member of this community. Go Heels. Because of the growing number of students testing positive, school administrators made a huge reversal. After just one week, they decided to switch to remote classes and to send students home. I'm Anna Pogarcic. I'm a senior graduating in May 2021. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Daily Tar Heel, and I'm also a journalism and American history major. So the university announced its roadmap for the fall way back in May and announced their intention that they wanted to bring students back to campus and have at least some in-person classes. Many students came back to Chapel Hill either to live on campus or live off campus in apartments, and many students had at least some in-person classes. So that was kind of the two different scenarios in which people were able to participate with UNC this fall. But as the semester got closer, a lot of classes either got moved to online that were originally going to be in person or got moved to locations that were off of main campus. So there was a lot of rapid change in the last two weeks as the university tried to get ready and bring students back. A lot of students, faculty and staff expressed concerns about the plan. Everybody was questioning whether the university had thought through the potential health and safety impacts of bringing people back to campus in person. And a lot of people expressed doubts about the way they were doing it. The university instituted policies like making some of the hallways in buildings one way, putting hand sanitizer at front door of buildings and other things like that, and then just encouraging mask wearing. And people were basically saying, is it worth it to go through all of this just to have a class in person and potentially put people at risk? 
from the very beginning, student leaders have been telling administration that an online option for remote instruction and classes in general is probably the smartest way to keep people safe. So my name is Colin Smith. I'm a junior. I am a public policy major with a concentration in education and minors in education and Latinx studies. And as far as my involvement, just what I consider myself surface level being a student activist for other students. To pretend that we can get back to that normal time, it was really like, wow, we, we see where your priorities lay that you think in-person classes is for the benefit of us because it's really not. My name is Maya Logan, and I am a junior at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, currently studying quantitative biology and public policy with a minor in chemistry. So on August 17th, students received an email stating that effective Wednesday, August 19th, all undergraduate in-person instruction will shift to remote learning. So effective on Tuesday, many students received an email from Carolina Housing stating that unless students have a need to stay on campus, all students are requested to cancel their housing contracts by August 25th, which is next Tuesday. So with that being said, our provost, uh, Vice Provost Bluen stated that we tried and that he doesn't apologize for trying. But in my opinion, the priorities for UNC has not been lives. The priority has been something else than lives. And when dealing with lives, you have to do more than try. You have to make sure and ensure that in all scenarios, there is a backup plan, whether your backup plan is equitable for all. They seemed to mostly credit the clusters to off-campus gatherings, as opposed to the university's choice to bring students back in the first place. By the end of this week, I plan on leaving because I feel like that's what's safe for me and that's socially responsible. I feel like we saw this coming all along. They decided on August 17th that they were going to go all remote for all their teaching of undergraduates for the rest of the semester because they couldn't envision how to make it work without the virus spreading too fast. I'm Nick Anderson. I write about education for The Post with a focus on colleges and universities. There were a lot of voices of skepticism in the run-up to this, but basically the university was trying to make a go of it. What they are going through right now really embodies the challenge for a lot of universities around the country trying to get back to in-person teaching, but coming up against the realities that in many cases it's not safe. So how are other institutions kind of navigating this moment? UNC Chapel Hill was one of those that went very early this month. So they were a test case. There's another one in South Bend, Indiana, uh, that being the University of Notre Dame. They started on the same day as UNC Chapel Hill, and they too have pivoted to remote instruction for a couple of weeks at least. They're hoping to, to restart in-person instruction at Notre Dame, but they have pivoted to online instruction, and they're worried too. 
I guarantee you that every college and university president in the country is reading the headlines about Chapel Hill and Notre Dame right now, and they are worried if they have in-person plans. There are many that still do have in-person plans. And so it's worth emphasizing that not all colleges are going remote right now. There are many out there that still are... They have students back on campus. They have lots of protections in place. They um, hope with fingers crossed, you know, that they can carry out a semester the way that they uh, had planned. But it's very touchy right now. The first instance that I was aware of where a university really acknowledged, hey, the, the experience of Chapel Hill and elsewhere is sobering and we're going to change our plans because of that. This was Michigan State University, a huge public university in Michigan, and they were going to open primarily in person on September 2nd, and they have decided to go remote for the semester and encourage students not to come to East Lansing. Because they've seen how poorly things can go in in other places. Yeah, because, listen, all these universities are taking every public health measure they can think of with a good intention of trying to make it work. They're just, they're starting to see that their public health measures are kind of similar from place to place. And if they get many universities having the same results, then why are they going to sort of forge ahead? That's the question they're asking. And that's the question that I have, is that it seems like if it's becoming clear that this situation of having thousands of kids on a campus, potentially going to classes together, but but probably more problematically, living together, you know, bumping into each other in hallways and, and wanting to take opportunities to socialize, even if they're not allowed to do that. If that's clear that that's going to be the reality, then why is there this pressure to try to reopen in person? Why not just sort of read the tea leaves and say, look, we're all going to do this remotely. This is just the reality of the situation right now. Well, I'd offer three reasons to you. Um, One is idealistic. These colleges and universities have a mission to educate, right? And so that mission to educate is best fulfilled in person uh, in in their view. And I think uh, parents and students agree. Another rationale for moving forward is that conditions on the ground vary from place to place. So it's one thing to be a college in Maine, where the COVID problem is relatively low compared to other parts of the country. It's another thing to be a college in Georgia or Southern California or... Places that are, that are really near the epicenters of what we're seeing. Right. And even in North Carolina, the state university system made the argument the other day that, hey, just because Chapel Hill is going remote, that doesn't mean that all the North Carolina's public universities are going to go remote. In fact, there are still some that are operating in person right now. But do you think that money is a reason as well? Because I feel like the the thing that makes universities unique and it's different from uh, public schools or or K through 12 schools is that the students are students, but they're also customers and their parents are customers. And a lot of them are paying a ton of money for a certain kind of college experience. Money is lurking in the background of all these decisions. It's in in the heads of the college administrators who, if they don't collect room and board and if they don't collect full tuition, they've got major, major budget problems and furloughs of staff and layoffs of staff that they'll have to contemplate. It's in the minds, too, of the students and parents who are wondering, hey, wait a minute, why am I paying 
full tuition for an experience of, of sitting on Zoom in my um, uh, attic or basement in my in my house. You know, I I didn't envision this kind of Zoom education when I applied to this college. Why should I be paying for full rate for it when I'm sitting at home? But I think it's also becoming clear that there are ramifications for these kinds of hairpin turns in policies on whether or not they're going to do in-person or remote learning. The ramifications are huge. If you're a student and you're coming to campus for a little while and then you've got to go home all of a sudden and then you've got to adjust to a new mode of instruction... That takes a toll on your capacity to intellectually focus. College is really hard work, or it ought to be. And you have to like get your head in the game. You have to like buckle down and read those books. You have to like talk to your professors either through Zoom or through, you know, phone calls or however you're communicating under these circumstances. And how are you going to do that effectively, efficiently, and with full heart and mind if you're like worried about covid or you know worried about whether your stuff is going to get lost in your dorm as you have to move you know this these disruptions take a toll on the educational process If you're a North Carolina student right now, or for that matter, a Notre Dame student, or anywhere else where these pivots are happening, you are totally, completely distracted. And that distraction is going to hurt the bottom line of what education you're getting out of the classes you've enrolled in. And that is a real tragedy. Nick Anderson covers higher education for The Post. Post Reports producer Jordan Marie Smith spoke with UNC Chapel Hill students Anna Pogarchic, Colin Smith, Maya Logan, and Emily Orland. By the way, we reached out to UNC Chapel Hill for comment about what's been going on on campus. Representatives for the university declined our request for an interview. Delaware is proud to cast its 32 votes for our favorite son and our next president. Our friend, Delaware, Joe Biden. So tonight, Joe Biden is going to officially accept the Democratic nomination for president. And that is basically something that he has been trying to get for more than the last three decades. And so I'm just wondering, how do you think that Biden is feeling right now? It's sort of a mixture. My name is Matt Viser. I'm a political reporter at The Washington Post. In talking to people who've been close to him throughout his life, there is a feeling of triumph in a way. I mean, he has been after this goal for much of his life, really. He's, he's had this aspiration to be president. And he's, he's closer than he's ever been before to accomplishing that goal. But I, I think it also comes at this moment of national crisis. So it, it's not exactly a pop the champagne, drop the balloons moment necessarily. I, I mean, he, he is very sobered about the idea of what he would inherit and, and what he would have to do if he wins this election. So I think there's like those sort of twin emotions that he's going through right now. And I think he's feeling like the moment has finally come to him. 
and that the country that he is seeking to inherit is just a very different and and frankly much darker country than he would have gotten if he had gotten any further in any of those previous runs. That's right. I mean, I think that he has been motivated by ambition in, in past campaigns and throughout his life to run for president. This time around, certainly there's a lot of ambition, but there's also the feeling of a historic campaign that he feels like he is the person to stop President Trump and to oust him from office. And and that, I think, is, is sort of a different factor in, in Biden. It's more personal in nature. It's less policy-rooted as some of his past campaigns have been about. And it's more, you know, as he puts it, it's a fight for the soul of the country. And folks, as I said, it's bigger than any candidate, bigger than any party, and uh, we're in the battle for the soul of the nation. And that's not hyperbole. We really believe that, and I think it's been demonstrated every single hour he remains as president of the United States. And, and I think that that's what Biden is, is trying to channel and, and what we'll hear from him tonight in his address. So I want to take a little tour through the history of Biden trying to run for president. What were those previous runs like and why didn't he get very far whenever he did this before? It's interesting because in talking to people around him, there, there's been a feeling for, for Biden of being a man in the moment and, and really the moment has come around to Biden in, in a way. And and frankly, in this past campaigns, he, he just was not the right candidate for the moment and, and what the party was looking for. In 1988, he was trying to run as a candidate of, of generational change. He was trying to channel this youthful energy in, into a campaign that didn't quite work. And of course, he was also, I mean, his campaign ended just very dismally with accusations of plagiarism. He had lifted words from a British politician in, in one of his speeches. And I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Is it because our fathers and mothers were not bright? Is it because I'm the first Biden in a thousand generations to get a college and a graduate degree that I was smarter than the rest? Which later led to other discoveries of other speeches that he was citing uh, Robert Kennedy without citations. And really, it was a, sort of a moment of, of, of failure for Biden at that time in 88. So really, just after a couple months after getting started, he was out of the race. And then he, he ran again in 2008. And he ran at that time, not as the youthful candidate, but as the guy with the most experience. I mean, he was really running as a chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as a guy who sort of knew how to work Washington. I will. I take no back seat to anyone running in terms of experience. I have more experience than anybody that's running. But, you know, experience isn't necessarily all that good unless it's good experience. You can have 30 years of bad experience, too, you know. And again, he was not the man for the moment. Uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were both ahead during that entire campaign. And they both had this historic nature to their campaigns as uh, trying to be the first black president and the first woman president. And, and Biden was sort of out of step with that moment for the party. And so then why do you think that in this moment, Biden has basically fit what Democrats ultimately decided that they needed? 
it's interesting where he's kind of merged two of his strengths over his career. One of them is kind of a personal quality of Biden just sort of being kind of a man of dignity. You know, that's sort of baked into his reputation that people like him. They think he's a good guy. They think he's a family man. And, you know, they respect him, you know, both sides of the aisle. And that is merged with his experience. The experience that was hindering him in some ways in, in 2008 is now an advantage and, and something that he has pointed to and that the parties agreed with, that they do like his experience. They do feel like that experience is something that would be a benefit running against President Trump. And so I think the thing that's changed really is Trump. Well, I also wonder how much of this is luck. And I don't mean that disparagingly because I think that, you know, any any presidential candidate who is ultimately successful has been very lucky in in hitting at the right moment. But I think it's hard to make an argument that Biden is like a better campaigner than he was, you know, in 2008. And that the things that have plagued him over the years, you know, that he's gaff prone, um, that, that those are the things that you could argue have gotten worse since then. But that that it's more about the situation changing and the circumstances changing to meet him where he's at now, that that the world changed toward him rather than him, you know, suddenly being a much better or more viable candidate for president. That's absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, in talking to Ted Kaufman, uh, one of his longest advisors who's been with him his entire political career, he told me that Biden is rolled up into one person as the luckiest person I have ever met in my entire life. And he's also the unluckiest person. Because he's had so many personal tragedies and and the fact that he lost his his first wife and his daughter and then his son more recently and that, that there have been many unlucky parts of his life. Right. There's been ups and downs throughout and that now he's lucky. You know, the moment has finally come around to him. He's been in this game long enough to where it's like circled around. And one of his old, you know, best friends from college, I, I talked to as well. And, and he had a conversation with Biden a year or two ago. And, and Biden told him that he's come to realize it's all about fate. It's not about anything else. There's a plan and there's fate. And that matters more than anything else. And so for Biden, I think, you know, part of that is a religious aspect of Biden. But I do think that he just sort of feels like things happen and he has to be at the right place at the right time. And that's what will change the circumstances for him. Another one of his friends described it where, where Biden always wanted to be where the lightning would strike. <laughs> and, and that's how it's been in the successful moments of his political career. He's sort of just been the right person at the right time. And that is, as you point out, like the circumstances are just different in 2020 than they have been, you know, in 1988 or 2008 or for that matter, almost every four years, because Biden, almost every four years, would think about running for president. He pulled the trigger twice, but he thought about it almost every time there was a presidential election. Do you think that there are any hindrances for him, for, for the fact that he has run for president two times before and has you know been always talked about as a potential presidential candidate, as you said, basically every four years when he's been thinking about it? I think with Biden, his campaign at the very start and even before he got in the race, they realized that his longevity in politics was a hindrance. They knew that his record was long. There were contradictions within that record, that the party had moved dramatically away from where he had been at prior parts of his career. 
and that did become an issue during the Democratic presidential primary race. Uh, Biden's record was picked apart, including by his current vice presidential you know, running mate in Kamala Harris. We have also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. And, you know, it led to these moments of clashing, but he emerged from that. I mean, he still won despite all of that. And and I think that it has been a hindrance. I don't know that it's it's as much of a hindrance going forward in the general election as it has been in the primary campaign. But the Trump campaign can point to a lot of those same things and, and, and cast it in a negative light about Joe Biden sort of running as a different candidate in 2020 than he has in, in earlier parts of his career. And, and I think that that will be, you know, sort of played out over the next couple of months. Matt Viser is a national political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing on Susan B. Anthony, the suffragist who has now been pardoned by President Trump. She was never pardoned. Did you know that? She was never pardoned. What took so long? Caroline Kitchener from The Lily has been reporting on a contentious part of Susan B. Anthony's legacy. So in May 2010, about six months before the 2010 midterms, Sarah Palin gave the keynote address at a breakfast hosted by the Susan B. Anthony list. Thank you so much. And she was there to talk about the importance of electing anti-abortion female candidates because Susan B. Anthony List is a group that is dedicated to electing anti-abortion female candidates. You act as a representative for all feminists who believe in the culture of life. But she said something in the speech that was not really related to current politics at all. It was about Susan B. Anthony and Susan B. Anthony's views on abortion. You remind us that the earliest leaders of the women's rights movements, they were pro-life, women like your namesake. And that's a very controversial statement because not everyone agrees. Now, immediately people have something to say about this. The sort of preeminent women's history scholars who study the suffrage movement, they come out and say that's not true at all. There is absolutely no evidence for Susan B. Anthony being anti-abortion, to which anti-abortion advocates, they say, well, no, look right here, we've got this text. So this whole debate really comes down to a couple of articles and different things that she said. And the whole debate is about were these things taken out of context? Were they actually said by her? Is she the actual writer or speaker? 
And both sides have very different views on that. Part of why I wanted to do this story was that there are several people who have dedicated their lives to this debate. Making mistakes about history is one thing. There's a lot of bad information out there. So one of those people is Anne Gordon, former Rutgers professor who is the editor of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's papers. Now, Anne Gordon would say... They're not just misreading articles from the revolution. These people are whack. This is absolutely ridiculous. Um, Susan B. Anthony was absolutely not anti-abortion. We don't know what she was because she didn't write about this. And anti-abortion advocates are sort of weaponizing her legacy for their own political gains. It's a disease. Mm. <laughs> you could argue. On the other side, we have... Being named Susan B. Anthony Ellis invites the question, why? Marjorie Dannenfelser, who's the president of the Susan B. Anthony List. Susan B. Anthony, as a feminist icon, was a perfect model, especially because we uh, knew her to be pro-life. And, you know, she's been president for many, many years and believes very deeply that Susan B. Anthony was opposed to abortion. And that is her organization's namesake. That is such an integral part of her organization's founding mission is the idea that Anthony opposed this procedure. Nobody argues that she was fine with abortion, that's for sure. You really have them fighting about a handful of statements and sort of pinning her entire position on abortion on those couple of things. Some of these statements are anonymous things that were written in her newspaper signed by the letter A. There's a lot of debate about whether A stands for Anthony. The scholars, the women's history scholars would say absolutely not. And the anti-abortion advocates would say absolutely yes, it does. There's a diary entry that she wrote about her sister-in-law who had a at-home abortion and was bedridden for many days. She writes, she will rue the day she forced nature. Anti-abortion advocates are saying, well, that means she thinks abortion is terrible. Scholars who take the opposing view say, hang on, that's a pretty broad statement. We don't know what she means by that. Now, the reason that this is so hard is that she really didn't say that much about abortion which is strange because she was so opinionated and so outspoken on so many different things, just not on this thing. Well, it was so striking to me how much time and energy people are investing into this one historical figure's view of this one thing. You know, why is this so important for us to know what she thought, especially because it clearly wasn't an issue that she made a top priority. This was not something that she was sort of out there advocating for publicly in the same way that she was advocating for suffrage. And what I realized is that this is really a debate about the definition of feminism. In the 1970s, abortion became, you know, a cornerstone, maybe the main cornerstone of the feminist movement. Now, I think a lot of people would say that you can't be a feminist without being pro-choice. And these anti-abortion advocates are saying, hey, 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 hold on. Look at our kind of feminist of all feminists, this foremother who won women's rights to vote. She opposed this. So, of course, you can and should be a feminist who also opposes abortion. So if their namesake didn't actually believe what they believe, 
I don't know, what would that do to places like the Susan B. Anthony List and organizations like Feminists for Life who have sort of built their entire mission around their claim that Susan B. Anthony was anti-abortion? Caroline Kitchener is a writer for The Lily. The Lily is also out now with a new video series on suffrage and the American women that won the right to vote. It's called The Fight, and you can find a link on postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're planning to watch tonight, the last night of the Democratic National Convention, there is nowhere better to do that than at WashingtonPost.com. We have a live show starting at 8 p.m. Eastern where we're airing the whole convention uninterrupted. We will also have that going next week for the Republican National Convention. You can find the live show at WashingtonPost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Thank you.